The podcast will begin after this message. Today's episode is presented by Thai Union. At Thai Union, a world leader in the seafood sector, ensuring seas are sustainable now and for the future generations is paramount. That's why we launched Sea Change, our sustainability strategy to ensure safe and legal labor, responsible sourcing and operations, and support to the people and communities in the regions where we operate. Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the political editor at Politico Europe, and you're listening to the number one EU politics podcast. We're taking you to the ocean today. Or the oceans, I should say. All of them. I've been wanting to talk about this topic for a while. I keep hearing phrases like the blue economy and watching distressing scenes of pollution or weather-related destruction around the world. But oceans are one of those issues that are easy to keep pushing off one's plate. And we finally decided to get our act together this week and bring you a collection of interviews that showcase several of the many aspects of oceans. They're 70% of our planet and the backyard of most of the world's population. Because, let's face it, most of us live within a few kilometers of a coastline. Oceans are inescapably about the environment, but there's more to it than that. So this week, we've got four interviews with Justine Mayo from the Surfrider Foundation, the activist who's pushing for European and global change from the bottom up. Then we hear from Davide Magagna. He's a PhD in ocean energy who is working on an EU-funded research project that develops ocean wave farms. Then there's Werner Hoyer, the money man, the president of the European Investment Bank who's got a new multi-billion euro fund to fix ocean problems. And finally, Commissioner Carmenu Vela. He's the European commissioner who got the gig that most commissioners don't want, the portfolio others make fun of, maritime and fisheries but he's ridden and indeed helped to build a wave of political momentum for ocean issues. Then in the podcast panel, we address some of the week's news in another free-flowing panel discussion. It's about why our public debates seem to be careening out of control, from toxic and extreme rhetoric to the unfiltered and sometimes fact-free contributions that are just puzzling. Joining us now on the podcast is Justine Mayo, who is with the Surfrider Foundation. So they're a group of activists who have an office here in Brussels, and they've been establishing the Voice for the Oceans campaign. And that is something that we've never seen before, this idea of oceans as a centerpiece in something like an election campaign or rising up the political agenda. So, Justine, maybe tell us what is the Surfrider Foundation and why do you think it's so important to have this voice now? So the Friday Foundation Europe is an NGO all across Europe and working mainly on the protection of oceans, our rivers and our coasts. And indeed, we launched this campaign this year called Voice for the Ocean to try to make sure the ocean-related issues are on the agenda of the next European elections. So basically, this campaign is an online consultation available in six languages where people are given information about the ocean and ocean-related issues and what the EU is doing about it. And then they are asked a number of questions on those issues. And basically, the idea is for them to give their voice and really share their priorities for ocean action. Now, you wouldn't know this, but I grew up in a surfing village in Australia. So actually, 
Surf Rider Foundation is one of the first examples of an activist organization I ever came across. And this was really like surfers with bleach blonde hair, it was mostly guys. I think there were a few hippies involved, but they were really people who were active in our community. And we were not a very political community at all. I can, I can tell you that much. So it's really interesting to see it come all the way through to Brussels, which is not known for its surfing, let's say. What are you doing to raise the profile? I, you were down at the parliament. Have you got some more actions planned? Yes, yeah, so Surfrider remains very much a volunteer-based NGO, but that's true, they also do some political work. And we were all together in front of the parliament to raise this issue, and we met with a number of members of the parliament, including the ones that are very much engaged in some EU legislation at the moment on plastic. And it was also a good opportunity to just raise awareness of people passing by in Place du Luxembourg, so that's kind of the EU bubble, but also beyond. Mm-hmm. And plastic seems like the hot issue at the moment, where we've all seen those images of animals in the ocean suffering because they've swallowed or been trapped in plastic and so on. Why do you think plastics is hot right now? Is it that we're all just looking for the next trend or is there some real evidence and political momentum where you think there is going to be a lot of legislation in the next years? Plastic is definitely the pollutants in our ocean that is growing and growing. We see it clearly. There's scientific evidence about it. And I think there's also very much an emotional part of the plastic pollution because everybody can see it on its coast, but also on its rivers, everywhere, even in cities sometimes. So I think it kind of is the image and the iconic vision of what's happening further also in the ocean. And people can really relate to it from an emotion point of view when they see possibly the beach where they like to go with their kids for holidays full of plastic. And what I think is important is to use kind of this emotion and this passion about this to make people aware of the broader issue with plastic and the fact that we need to completely rethink the way we produce and consume plastic. That's a really interesting idea that we shouldn't just be acting in isolation, but that if you want to really fix something as big as plastics, you have to work across lots of different organizations. Does that mean you get involved with other environmental NGOs and other activists, or are you trying to do this campaign on your own? So Surfrider Foundation Europe is active at many levels, local, national, European and international, and definitely at the national, European and international level we're working with other NGOs. Here in Brussels, more on EU policy, we're working with nine other NGOs in a coalition that is called Rethink Plastic. And at the UN level, we're working with a global movement that is called the Breakthrough from Plastic Movement, with organization around the world, because indeed it's such a challenge. And plastic pollution implies and is linked to many, many issues. And it's really important to be all together and bring the expertise and the legitimacy also from the citizens all together. And we're starting to see some interesting ideas, even from fairly conservative corners of the world, people you wouldn't expect. Someone like Gunter Oettinger, the budget commissioner, he came out and said, well, why don't we have a plastics tax, for example? Do you think the solutions include things like taxes or banning certain types of plastic? Indeed, everybody seems to care, and I think it's also because clearly the citizens and the voters are caring, so the politicians really feel the urge to do something. I think a wide range of measures are needed to tackle the pollution crisis. Banning some items like single-use plastic items that we do not need is one, and it's what's happening at the moment 
at the EU level. A plastic tax is also interesting because one of the problems is that plastic is so cheap in a way, so that's just easy to use and dispose and making single-use plastic is just so easy. And if we actually want to rethink plastic, possibly integrate recycled plastic in products, then we need to make sure that recycled plastic is more competitive compared to conventional plastic and tax then can be one of the tools, yes. Is there any other message that you think voters need to hear or if an MEP or a commissioner is listening, what do you want them to do? I think ocean is not just an environmental issue. It can be perceived this way, but no, it's social, environmental and economic issue. So it's really key to put the health of ocean at the center of the agenda for the next mandate. And I think citizens really want that. They're also ready to make a proper change so that Notably, we rethink our approach to the environment, to ocean, from kind of an exploitation to conservation. Justine, thanks so much for joining us on EU Confidential. Thank you very much, Ryan. Joining me now on EU Confidential is Davide Magagna, who is a scientist working with the European Union's Joint Research Centre. And you are based in the Netherlands, and you're working on some exciting projects around how to generate electricity out of waves. Do you maybe want to introduce a little bit why you think this is such a big opportunity and why the Commission's got you working on it? Yes, well, this is such a big opportunity because a great part of Europe is blessed by the Atlantic coast, which can provide renewable electricity to many countries easily, more consistently than other sources. And it's there, and it's also, because it's ocean, it's very close to where most of the European population lives. So if you are able to drive electricity where people are, then you have additional benefits. Mm -hmm. And so how far off the coast are those sort of pieces of equipment? It depends. Obviously now we are still at you know more research and development phase rather than a commercial rollout. You'll see the first developments between 5 to 10 kilometers from the coast and then they will go even further off because further off in the ocean you have more, more potential to mm -hmm. generate. And then I guess it doesn't have the same visual impact as the wind turbines do so some people consider those wind turbines really ugly and maybe wave energy has a better potential because it's going to cause less concerns for, for those sort of yes, people. Yes, obviously wave energy, the devices are smaller, the power is more concentrated, the devices are smaller compared to wind energy turbine and of course maybe they are just only surface floating so from far away they will look a lot more like boats rather than wind turbines and of course many wind turbines. Then we also have tidal energy, and they use the current in the stream, so the potential is a bit more reduced, but it's a wonderful technology from the point of view of the fact that you have tides 20 hours a day, so this is completely dispatchable. And as long technology. as we have a moon, they're going to keep coming. Exactly, and you know already when you can generate electricity next Thursday, because you know exactly where the stream will be. And Obviously, because the stream is in the water, these devices are going to be underwater, which then removes completely any issues of social impacts. And it strikes me that this is a very high potential technology. 
But then I'm surprised as well that other organizations, whether it is a government or a venture capital investor, they've seemed to focus more on wind and solar rather than these type of technologies. Do you feel like ocean technologies are catching up now? And tell us a bit more about why it's taken so long to develop these ideas. First thing, yes, it's catching up slowly, but it's catching up. I think if you go and look around, you start to see that we have the first of a kind demonstration projects, especially for tidal turbines, that they are working and they are generating and they are really consistent system, which really is what you want from a utility market point of view. Obviously, the big drawback in the, the terms of the development is the fact that the other technologies didn't have to deal with the ocean. Mm-hmm. Okay, so even an offshore wind turbine doesn't, yeah, maybe the foundation deals with the ocean. That's the most critical part, but it's a stationary system. Mm-hmm. Tidal turbines, they need to react to the, you know, they move with the current, they need, so everything, debris, everything that is in there is going to affect their functionalities. Wave energies, they need to move with the waves. Mm-hmm. So it's why, like, if you take a boat, you're thinking this boat has just to keep afloat with the waves. Here, not only I want to move in sync with the waves and also gather electricity out of there. So it's, in a way, it's like, imagine the difference between swimming and trying to surf, you know? It That's a very a good more. analogy. And if we know anything out of maritime history, it's that oceans can be great 99% of the time, but it's the 1% of the time that caused every shipwreck in history, every tsunami in history. There's there's a lot of downside when things go wrong. There is a lot of downside. And of course, if you need to make a commercial proposal, you want to be sure that these are addressed so that you can gather investors. Because investors, they go where they can make a profit. And if you look at the technology that we are still in the development phase, and this is one of the biggest topics that as a commission we, we try to tell people we need to work on the survivability and the reliability of these devices. Because these are the two points that will allow us then to go further down and make sure that this becomes a commercial reality. And is that the point of the EU's involvement to do some of that fundamental research that makes this technology more attractive to investors, something that maybe those investors would never do themselves, but they can take it the next step once you've done this work. So the EU supports a lot of research development. I think we were just in a meeting now discussing the EU funds on ocean energy, and the EU right now is a global leader in supporting work, and it takes place in universities throughout Europe. What we are trying now to do with the next push is actually make sure that people realize the potential that we have there because it's not only a blue energy potential really, it's also economic potential that we have around the coast. We are already seeing it with wind energy in a way that remote areas, but also areas where previously there was big ship manufacturing, now they are starting to grow again because you're moving there the production, the manufacturing of, of your turbines. And if you think that wave energy can really take across space, across every inch of the Atlantic, if tidal energy can take, you can see that the potential for job and growth that maritime regions have. That's interesting because everything you just said explains it as a quite advanced manufacturing. So it could be another one of those examples where manufacturing can really exist in Europe. Who are Europe's competitors? When you look across the global landscape, is it China or is it someone else that Europe would be competing against to get this to market? In a way, technology 
the few examples of technology installed, most of them are European technology even. Right now we are actually experiencing this. Our European technology is funded with EU money is moving to Canada because there are better market measures. So that's the thing, you know, it's technology we are advanced. China is catching up a lot with technology, the US a bit, but not that much. They don't have the same amount of knowledge that we accrued over 20 years of studies. But, you know, the risk is do we develop the technology, but then we are not able to have it develop here in terms of market. Davide, thank you for joining us on EU Competential. No problem, you're welcome. Joining me now is President Werner Hoyer of the European Investment Bank on the phone from Bali. Thanks so much for joining us, President Hoyer. My pleasure. So I was wanting to get you to tell us a little bit about this new Clean Oceans initiative that the bank is supporting, along with the German federal government and one of the French development agencies, because it sounds like a very big plan to reduce pollution in the world's oceans over the next five years. It is the first step in an initiative that must become much, much, much bigger, no doubt about that. But I think the time has come to somewhat aggressively address the issues of clean oceans. And we have developed this idea together with our colleagues in Agence France de Développement, the French Development Agency, and the KFW, the German Promotional Bank, in order to make a very visible first step. And sustainability is the name of the game here in Bali at this year's World Bank meeting. We have seen terrible reporting about the situation in many parts of the world concerning oceans. You need not go to the South Pacific or the, or the Arctic or so to see a huge accumulation of waste, in particular plastic waste, coming up and never disappearing again. You also see the situation in the ten major rivers, in particular in, in Asia and, and Africa, where we are continuing to send indestroyable material into the oceans for many, many years. And we want to set up a program that fights both the further pollution by stuff that we let flow into the ocean and also projects that help cleaning up the places where the pollution has already taken place. And what do you think has been the tipping point in this discussion? Is it those images of the plastic in the ocean or is it the rise of Asia and and the fact that you've got so many more people in the world now who are having these higher standards of living and these industrial processes? Because it seems to have really come up the political agenda in the last couple of years. Absolutely. And many developments come together here. The demographics come together with the lack of awareness come together with the urgency and need and emergency situations in many parts of the world, so where people don't see an alternative than to simply throw the stuff away. Now we have a situation where in development, but far beyond development, sustainability becomes the name of the game. And in connection with climate policies, sustainability is the catchword. And now your colleagues in the media all around the world are getting interested in what is happening in the oceans. And we give this information now more and more to our viewers on television and elsewhere. And this is an impact. People are getting worried. It is an issue that is very, very close to the heart of the people nowadays. And this is the reason why I believe our political leaders should address it much more vigorously. And we as development financiers should play an important role, live up to our responsibilities when it comes to financing projects that avoid or clean up 
developments like this one. And as part of the thinking that we live in a globalized economy with globalized supply chains, so that I guess now, even if the problem is occurring in another part of the world, it's still linked back to Europe's way of living and the products that we buy and consume? Well, thank God, we develop more and more a global conscience on these things. In the past, the attitude of people would have been you throw something into the River Rhine or the Thames or the, any other river in the world and that stuff disappears somewhere. You don't worry anymore once it has passed the coastline. Nowadays, we know that the travel, the voyage of these materials does not end at our shores. It goes around the world. So we have to address a global problem also at a global scale, and this is why I insist what we're doing here together with KFW and AfD can only be the first step in a huge effort which will keep the global community busy for decades. This first step is always a small one. Of course. Uh, and a final question about how you're structuring this initiative. I guess one of the big challenges you face is making sure you are bringing in extra investments, that you're not crowding out private sector investment when you get involved in an issue or you build a certain project. So how are you being careful to make sure that this is really adding to the investment levels on this issue? If the private sector would be able to take care of the problem itself and uh, do it at reasonable cost and or cost covering, then they should do it, for heaven's sake. But they are not able to do it, and therefore we need public initiatives that needs not simply be public grants and subsidies that can just be intelligent finance products that take part of the risk of potential investors. But we must make a business case to clean up our oceans. President Hoyer, thank you so much for joining us on EU Confidential. Thank you very much, Ryan. Bye-bye. For our final interview, we speak to Carmenu Vela, the European Commissioner from Malta, a rock, a beautiful one at that, in the Mediterranean. That alone gives him some insight into the power of the sea and our oceans, but he's also been his country's tourism and industry minister. You'll notice he speaks a very different language than most of us when it comes to the bounty of the ocean. Ordinary folk like us might think of the beach, or fish, or plastic waste, Vela speaks of services from the ocean, and he says they're a gold mine that instead we treat like a landfill. Here he is. I spoke to him on the phone from Strasbourg, where he was attending the European Parliament's plenary session. Commissioner, I was wanting to know, what are you most proud of over the last four years? It's been a busy time where oceans have really risen up the political agenda. Well, I think that myself and my team, mostly we are proud that we brought the oceans onto the global picture. We brought the oceans as part of the top global agenda, whether in the UN, G7, hopefully in Argentina and the G20 this year. And as a result, I think that oceans are receiving more attention than ever before. We did that by emphasizing the fact that it is the blue of the ocean which is greening our planet. There's no green without blue. When we consider the free services, I would say, that we get from the oceans, well, the oceans are the prime climate regulators. They absorb some 90% of the planet's temperature, some one-third of the planet's carbon dioxide. They give us more than 50% of the planet's oxygen, not to mention food, energy, and so on. And I think that the combination of the blue with the green was pushed this global agenda. Obviously, on the global scene, the European Union was instrumental, first and foremost, in protecting biodiversity 
beyond national jurisdiction. This is what we pushed in the United Nations. We have a new treaty, hopefully for the high seas, which fills a major gap when it comes to ocean governance. The European Union has been working on this since 2006, but I would say that we achieved a lot of progress in the last three years. What would you say is the biggest challenge in 2019? Because I agree with you, it's really much more visible now, these issues. I think we would definitely all agree there's a higher level of awareness. Is it converting other countries into a European perspective? Or is it still that you need to get European governments, European citizens to have action that matches their words and their new awareness? No, I think we're getting a lot of other countries on board on this, as can be, you know, said through our our oceans conferences, through multilateral agreements, such as the fishing moratorium in the Arctic Ocean. Obviously, you mentioned challenges. We do have a lot of challenges. We're talking about marine pollution or land pollution, because it's land pollution ending up in our oceans. We still have to fight IUU. We have the big issue of climate change resulting in melting ice and rising sea levels. We have a threat which, unfortunately, in my opinion, it's not being addressed adequately, and I'm referring to acidification and eutrophication, which is the result of excess nutrients from, I would say, bad agricultural practices. But... I think the biggest effect is the combined effect of all this. And when we talk about the biggest threat, Ryan, I think mankind is the biggest threat. For me, mankind is the main beneficiary of the services that we get from the oceans. But unfortunately, mankind is the main threat as well. And I'm saying this because we all know that most of the challenges and the threats are man-made. In the oceans, we have a gold mine. But unfortunately, we are treating this gold mine as a landfill. That's why we need international ocean governance. We share the benefits of the oceans. We must share the responsibility as well. We have a global challenge. We have to come up with global solutions. But most importantly, we have to have global global action. And I think this is the message that we will be pushing once more in the Our Oceans Conference in Bali, which I will be attending in the next few days. What do you think is the biggest risk for Europe and the world now that we're in the stage of such man-made impact on the oceans? I think that our planet, including Europe, that is, is putting at risk its own survivability. By nature, I'm not pessimistic. But if being optimistic means business as usual, if being optimistic means more complacency, then we cannot afford to be optimistic. In one sentence, if the oceans fail, the planet will collapse. We cannot save the planet without saving the oceans. There is no green without blue. And when we talk about the risk, Ryan, actually and in reality, Who is at risk here? Is it the oceans? Is it the planet? Or is it mankind? I would say that mankind is at risk because we cannot survive without a planet, but the planet can survive without us. I always say that if we treat the oceans good, they will treat us better. If we treat them bad, they will treat us 
worst. And I think nature, I have to say this, nature will fight back. And I think nature is already fighting back. If it does, can we stop it? Can we stop the hurricanes? Can we resolve the droughts, the floods, forest fires in the Arctic, not the least? I think we are at risk of having to face nature at its worst. Commissioner, thank you so much for joining us on the line from Strasbourg. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you very much. That was Commissioner Kamenu Vela. The podcast panel is coming up after this message. A message from Thai Union. A sustainable use of our oceans and resources is crucial for the future of our planet. At Thai Union, we take the sustainability of fish stocks very seriously. From catch to consumption, we track every product and ensure our suppliers abide by the same sustainability commitment as ours. Global environmental risks such as climate change, resource consumption and waste management are also threatening our oceans and the marine species on which we depend. At Thai Union, we are committed to ensuring that our operations respect the environment. In the past years, we have put in place initiatives that contribute to the reduction of water use, landfill and greenhouse gas emissions. Everyone at Thai Union plays an active role in delivering our environmental goals. Environmental protection is everyone's business. And now we're welcoming back the Brussels Brains Trust. Hello, Lena. Hello, Ryan. Hello, Alva. Hi, guys. Good morning. Now, we had such great feedback from last week's discussion, which was a bit more of a freewheeling discussion rather than a segment-by-segment discussion, that I thought we might try it again. And it was for, I suppose, reasonably sad reasons that I had that idea, which was there are a couple of incidents over the last week that really just rammed home to me how polarized and toxic and weird public discussion is becoming in so many parts of the world. So I expect this conversation to go into lots of places, but the two things that I was really thinking of here were that we had a bunch of bombs sent to US politicians uh, on Wednesday, and that seems to have just passed without much discussion already into the distance. And we had a really ridiculous debate in the European Parliament where a Conservative Party leader, Syed Kamal, actually equated socialism, as in social democracy, to national socialism, as in Nazism, which is an absolutely ridiculous claim to make by any stretch of the imagination. But whether it is Hungarian politicians claiming that Emmanuel Macron is 3D printed and controlled by strange forces. I don't know, there are just so many examples. So I want to kickstart a discussion about maybe some of the cultural reasons of why we are getting into this level of strangeness in our public discourse. I have a lot of ideas about that. I think that there's a few, for example, the rise of social media, the fact that our leaders are tweeting things in a number of characters or less has meant that everything has been simplified a little bit. And I think that at the beginning of when Twitter and things like that were available and people were using them, it was more traditional politicians. But now we've had the rise of populism as a result, a little bit as a backlash to political correctness. So when these people get on Twitter, you know, you can just say whatever you want. And now that more people have access to the internet, you know, you have everybody engaging in public discussion and of course that brings out a nastier side of people people feel more able to say whatever they want online and they often do so it's democracy but some aspects of democracy are not really as nice as we hoped they might be and I guess there are no gatekeepers anymore. There's no no people being the arbiter of class standards or politeness or morals. And so it's anything goes. Lena? Anything goes because I think 
it has to do a lot with the media itself. I mean, when was the last time a very important media outlet or a newspaper gave one page or two pages for a politician to come and write in depth his program, his vision, his values, what he wants to do for or her, she wants to do for her people. So uh, they are retrieving to the social media, they're retrieving to easier ways to reach the public. And the second is as well, there is this amazing ego centric persona centralized leaders. They believe that they are bigger than their own political parties, that they are bigger than their own voters. And they have reached to, I don't know how we, we call it, like a higher level of humanity that they are able to just attack, say nasty things, and no one is going to do anything for them. So it has to do with both aspects, I believe. Well, I wonder, Political leaders, you know, I'm not saying that they're psychopaths, but there is a lot of academic research that suggests that they're driven in certain ways that most people aren't. And it's true of CEOs and so on. It's one of those things that sort of drives you to the top. So I'm I'm not sure that it's unusual that you have leaders who think that they have amazing solutions and that essentially they're better than other people. But I wonder if we, the public, are having a bit of collective amnesia in the sense that I've never experienced a war in my own backyard or a world war in my own era. So you allow people who make these sort of absurd claims to rise when you don't have the personal experience that says, hang on, it's really dangerous when we let people like that take control. Yeah, and also I think there's a rise of scapegoating, scapegoating in the same way as, you know, Nazis used to scapegoat Jews. They were saying the the social model isn't working for us because this individual group of people, they're taking up too much of what we want. And we are seeing that in Europe now. And I think it's a backlash against neoliberalism following austerity. If we have had stuck to our social models, stuck to our guns, will we have this kind of rising middle class who don't have jobs and really felt left behind by the recession and, and by EU imposed austerity? And I think that's a genuine, we have to ask that question, you know, is it also a reflection of how poorly we did after the recession? Yeah, and now we see more and more scapegoating of individual people or minorities, for example, but also of the EU itself. And I think that is why things have gotten so toxic in Europe, because the EU has allowed itself to be a scapegoat by enforcing those neoliberal values in a way. And then maybe bring it back to an individual person-to-person level, what about that incident on Ryanair that's caused so much outrage this week, where you had this elderly gentleman, not that his age has anything to do with it, just basically being flat-out racist to another woman in her 70s who was sitting two seats away from him, literally because she happened to be black and going on holiday, and she was the one that was moved. I mean, I, I don't want to make this in particular about Ryanair, but what is it about a society where we now think that everyone's just allowed to have this, that everyone's entitled to their opinion, even if it's a racist opinion. And, you know, why weren't the flight attendants saying, hang on, that's racism, you're off our flight, or you're the one that moves at the very least? Because so many incidents like that took place and no one was held accountable. We all remember the the video of the man, I don't know which uh, American Airlines, that was dragged and and it it, it was very sad and very bad for the reputation, whether for the country and for the airline itself. I believe that there is a lot of suppression and agony in people that they are unable really to, they go to the social media or go to this one-to-one, as you mentioned, and voice their frustrations and their opinion because there are no reflection for their 
values or opinions in the political parties or their in own uh, villages or cities. So, yeah, I will get upset and I will say whatever I'm really suppressing in my mind and say to a woman. And there's nobody is going to suit Ryanair or so any other company that these incidents took place. I think going back to this this company in particular, I think they really make a point, a case study on how to destroy your reputation and keep managing to, to destroy your mm. reputation. It's a case study for us as reputation management uh, practitioners. And there's no punishment, simply. I think you're being very nice though, Lena. You know, when I'm always nice, Ryan. If you had people from uh, people of color or people from other minorities who didn't feel they had a voice in society, their reaction wasn't to scream at the people who were the majority or to commit acts of violence against them. Like their way was to generally organize through some kind of peaceful protest or petitioning to access their rights. So I'm not sure what it is about white people that they feel the need to scream at everyone else. Mm, Yeah, I mean, that is another reason why I think things have become so polarised and toxic. People feel like they haven't been able to say what they want because we developed this political correctness in order to treat people better. And some people, yeah, don't like that. Now, is there anything that we can do to bring these dynamics under control? You know, I have some sense and I can't call it evidence-based and I can't say it's based on my any particular reporting but I just feel we are somehow spinning a little bit out of control as a set of societies and when that happens you know it tends to happen for a while I don't have the sense that we're at rock bottom in this process so it makes me wonder where rock bottom is going to be and what if anything we can do to change where rock bottom is Yeah, I think that what we need to do is better educate everybody about how to engage online because so many people engage with bots or believe what bots say. A lot of people are turning to alternative types of media like Breitbart, etc. How do we make sure that citizens know what's news and what's fake news? I think that's number one. Number two is politicians who are in the centre or on the left need to stop moving towards populist rhetoric. They need to say, yes, the solutions are complicated, but explain them. For example, last year, when we were having this debate in Ireland about the referendum, we had a totally open and honest debate. And it was really, really... This was the referendum Yeah, the referendum on abortion. It was really difficult, but in the end, we got a good result. And if we can just stick it out and trust that people will look into things when we're having a public discourse. Maybe it'll be a bit nasty, but we have to let those conversations happen rather than just kind of reverting to this idea that everything is simplistic and we need to be able to explain the European Union in a tweet. Yes, it has to do a lot with the messages. And on Twitter, it looks very simplified. On Facebook, it looks very simplified. But when you want to implement it, Mm -hmm. and when you go to processes and procedures, it's extremely difficult. And people get like, you know, frustrated. And they they just simply don't engage. And they refrain to go to these little uh, skeptic circles. And we will have these incidents like one-to-one and people being upset. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a live example that I felt exemplifies quite a few of these things, which was Antonio Gianni made a comment on Wednesday morning, I think it was, and it was around the fact that one of the reasons why the proposed Italian budget from the populist nationalist government, one of the reasons why it shouldn't be allowed to proceed was that the sort of spending proposals they had would just end up in the hands of Roma and foreign people anyway. And I was 
pretty outraged that he would be allowed to get away with something like that because there are a lot of reasons to be critical of the Italian budget and money ending up in the hands of Roma isn't really one of them. But it brings together a lot of themes because it ties in the EU and the way it monitors national governments and tries to enforce some budget discipline. It brings in the scapegoating issue that you were mentioning before. It is bringing in the fact that there are now just multiple narratives. You know, there's not one set of facts anymore because the facts are probably that Italy has never really attacked the core of its debt problems. So it spends more on servicing its debt than on education, for example. So someone has to tell Italy that. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't spend money on vulnerable and poor groups either. And it doesn't mean when you spend it on them that it's going to go to people that are not even registered as official residents of the country. And people like Roma are very vulnerable and aren't very well represented in society. And to have the president of a parliament just attacking them when he's supposed to be A, neutral, B, acting in European politics, not national politics, I just found it so angry. Well, don't be too angry, Ryan. European elections are just around the corner. So for, for more few months with Mr. Tejan, let's, well, let's, no, let's I think, hope for the better. Thing. But I think the problem is there, and I already referred to this, is he uses that rhetoric because he knows that that's what populism is using at the moment. He's like, oh, I'm just going to talk about the Roma and that will make it he unpopular shouldn't. to people because he thinks that the Italian populist will like this idea yeah. or will not like the idea of everybody having this whatever yeah, it is. He's yeah. populist oxygen in order to kill the populace, but actually he's just being populist. But that's dangerous. And that is why everything has become so polarised and toxic, because even mainstream politicians are using those messages. That's terrible. Well, there we are. I guess that's not a hopeful note to end on. But thank you for joining us on this episode of EU Confidential. And as always, podcasting is a team effort. So I want to give my big thanks to Anya Bunker, Wei Dong Lin and Andrew Gray. Andrew Gray.